Hi, I'm Matt Henry, and I'm the pastor at Missio Day Fellowship in Kenosha, Wisconsin. Very thankful that you found our sermons, and I hope that they are a way of encouragement to you in your Christian walk. However, it's important for you to understand that this sermon was given in my church's context and for the people that God has entrusted for me to shepherd. So if you're in the Kenosha area, I would encourage you to come on a Sunday and worship with the body of Christ here. And if you're not in this area, these sermons are a great tool for supplementing your walk, but they are by no means a substitute for the local church. So you need to submit yourself to a faithful Bible teaching church and shepherd in your area. Thank you. Well, Acts chapter 4, I'm sorry, Acts chapter 8, verses 1 through 4, Acts chapter 8, 1 through 4. I'm going to read for you the passage, and then we will approach it. It says, And Saul was in hearty agreement with putting him to death. And on that day, a great persecution arose against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. And some devout men buried Stephen and made loud lamentation over him, but Saul began ravaging the church, entering house after house and dragging off men and women, he would put them in prison. Therefore, those who had been scattered went about the preaching of the word. One second. Now, what we have here is we left off over the last several weeks, we've been in the book of Acts, but in chapter 7, and we dealt with an extended examination of the martyrdom of Stephen. And then from there, I developed a more full theology of martyrdom and persecution that we might consider as we see many things changing before our very eyes in this nation. Now, for some of you, if you look at the story of Stephen and you think about it, you could come to a conclusion that what you actually have before you is a life that never reached its potential, a life that is a wasted life. But in reality with Stephen, you have a very well-lived life, for it is a life lived to the glory and the service of God and for the proclamation of the gospel. The only kind of life actually, beloved, that is wasted, and it is here I'm going to ask you to please pay attention. Don't let your mind wander. What is a wasted life? It's not Stephen. A wasted life is one where you literally waste your life. You waste it in the foolish pursuits. And that's certainly not limited to only young people who die young. What makes a young person's life wasted is if, while he is young, he spends his life in foolish things. He might have a great kill-death ratio in Call of Duty, but he wouldn't be able to find the book of Philemon if you held a gun to his head. He can maybe hack into the school computer system and cheat, but he can't figure out how to simply honor his mother and father. And if he were to die young, he has wasted his life, and it is a wasted life, and we've all seen him. But the same would go for you if you are an old man or woman in this room who spends your life acquiring toys and medals and memories of the glory days. As a man, you failed to ever become a faithful man, who is a man who does his duty before God and man. You fail to not model what a godly husband looks like, what a godly father ought to be. You see your money as a means to entertain yourself rather than to invest in eternity. And then you die at the ripe old age of 95 and you have wasted your life. And it is a wasted life. In America, we get things so twisted up 
that that which honors the Lord is called folly, and that which dishonors the Lord is applauded. And what's sick about it is it's done in the church. It's done in the church. And mom and dads are raising up people who waste their life because they're pursuing with full vim and vigor everything but that which matters. And oftentimes that happens because mom and dad are pursuing the same things. That The packaging is differently, but when you unwrap it and you look at it, it's the same stuff. And the time is coming in our nation, in our existence, where I believe that that is rapidly going to become to a point where you have critical decisions to make. And my mind always goes, I'm already off script, my mind always goes to the book of Proverbs where the woman in the streets who's wisdom personified and she's described as calling at the crossroads, come here, search for me as if you were to search for hidden treasure, which means it's going to be hard work and you're going to have to labor and dig so that you might gain that treasure called wisdom that begins with the fear of God. In the New Testament, that fear of God would just be changed, but it's the same meaning that you would trust in Christ, believe. It begins there with this right relationship with God and builds from there. And she says, come search for it diligently. And then she warns that if you do not, that on the day of calamity, when evil strikes you, you will then suddenly cry out for wisdom. And she says, I will not answer you. For some of you, that is where you are at. You keep pushing away the wisdom that your mom and your dad are crying out to you, your husband or your wife, your grandma, your grandpa, whoever it might be, who is calling you. Maybe it's just me, your pastor, calling you to come, hear, obey, submit, bow under the lordship of Jesus Christ, see him as supreme. And you have the, the temerity to shrug, roll your eyes, sigh, wander off, stretch, and go wandering into the folly of your pursuits. That is a wasted life. What we have with Stephan is not a wasted life. The length of our days is never bound up in our hands, beloved, though we act often as if they are. Jesus said it himself in the Gospel of Luke, worry over your life will never add even an hour to that life. Worrying about your life cannot add even an hour to your life, and yet, what do we spend so much time doing? Fretting and fuming and grooming and popping pills and stroking this and rubbing that and stretching these things, and we all are bound up and we want to we have a healthy life. And we forget the admonition that Exercise is of some value, but godliness is of great gain. And so we spend our life becoming an incredibly attractive corpse that everyone gazes and clucks their tongue and says, wow, they really did a nice job on him. He looks just like he was when he was alive, but it's a wasted life. What we have here is, is, is a very simple passage. There's many ways I could approach it, and this is the way I chose to approach it. It's a, a short passage that is a transition. In Luke, or when Luke writes, he has this way of writing that is helpful, and if you'll take the time to use your pencil and in your margin just write in these, this section that this is a transition point because the shift is moving from Jerusalem outward. 
And so he's beginning to take our mind and he's moving us outward and he's using the death of Stephan as a, a faithful man who died faithfully as the, the, the basis for our redirection of our minds. We have here and in verse 58 of chapter 7, if you just look backwards a little bit, you'll see a, an introduction to a man named Saul. This is very typical of Luke. He, he'll introduce casually, just throw in this name Saul or some other name, and you'll just see it. And then one, two, three chapters later, all of a sudden he'll deal with Saul in a very full manner or the other names. In fact, exactly what happened with Stephan, who was introduced in passing in Acts 6. He was a man described as a godly man full of the Spirit. And then chapter 7, but he's just mentioned once and then then he moves on. Then all of a sudden, chapter 7, he becomes the focal point until he dies. Interestingly, Philip is also mentioned right after Stephan in chapter 6 of Acts. But look down, and you'll see in verses 5 through 13 of our chapter, now Luke picks back up and focuses on Philip. This is just the way he does it. Never forget that the book of Acts is a book filled with transitions, and that is what we're dealing with here. It's a transition, and this transition is going to take us all the way up to chapter 15, of the book of Acts. It's a transition that we have here of the growth of the church, the advancement of the gospel, and the advancement of the gospel goes with the church. The church up to now has been primarily based in Jerusalem, but it's becoming or being spread now throughout the world. And this is what you see here. Notice verse 1, the last half of it. Where do we see the people scattering They're scattering into the regions of Judea and Samaria, and this is very, very important to note just by way of understanding. Now think about that in relationship to chapter 1, verse 8, where Jesus looks at the disciples before he ascends into heaven, and he says, you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest parts of the world. And that's what you have going on here, is all Acts is doing is chronicling the outward spread of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's what we want to focus our mind on today, is why? Why is that spread taking place? Why is it so important? And why does it matter to you while you sit here? Why must you be confronted with that? Why must you think about that? What does it matter? But I want you to notice verse 4 because it is the central point of the transition. Therefore, those who had been scattered went about doing what? Preaching the word. They went about preaching the word. This wasn't just the pastor. This wasn't just the evangelist. All the people, men and women, young and old, who believed went out scattered. They're losing everything. They're getting kicked out of their home. Understand that. That's not your home anymore. You just grab what you can that's valuable that you might be able to sell, and you get out of town because you might die. You're now not here. You're up in Canada. You're down in Mexico, and now you got to learn whole different things, and you got to deal with all that. And This wasn't a planned trip, so you have no itinerary, no place to go, and you got to go. So all you're thinking about is, look, we got things we got to deal with. We got to find a place to live. We have to find a way to eat. Or if you're thinking biblically, grab everything you go, but let's go with the gospel on our lips. Now, that's all, that's, that requires some radical rethinking. That, radical rethinking. We can't even go to a company picnic with that mindset. So I want you to think about it. The critical central point of the transition is they went forth preaching the word. Yeah, we see this introduction of Saul. 
He's going to become Paul, the apostle. Yeah, we see the persecution continued to spread to the church at large. We even see many of them fleeing the persecution, but these are not the point. The word of Jesus Christ in the hearts of these Christians and on their lips is the point. And so what you actually have in this little casual statement, a series of statements by Luke, is is an actual God-ordained advancement of the gospel through persecution. So let's talk about the nature of why and how the gospel advances. Today in our nation, what we have is a very huge level of ignorance regarding the gospel and the Christian faith, and it's evident in the TV shows, in the articles, and in the comments that we see across social media. In fact, on all of social media, there's a huge war being fought among those who would call themselves to be a Christian as to what we ought to focus upon. And the result is sad because the focus is almost never on the actual gospel, though they talk like it is. But everything else is rather the focus. People are hitching themselves to various factions without ever considering where it's going to lead. And they'll say these are gospel issues, but usually there's something else. More and more, it's common for you to ask a person, what is a Christian? What is the Christian faith? What is the Christian church? And you'll get blank stares from people because what we have effectively become as a nation, we're not even post-Christian. We are now just simply pagan. No knowledge of the true God. None. We are effectively raising up atheists or pagans who simply worship in whatever way they wish to worship. So the question I have before you is this. What is the Christian faith and what is a Christian church and why does it matter? And this is what I want you to do. Uh, If you belong to a a community group, then I would say work through these at the community group level. But I want you to actually go home and ask your kids this, young or old alike. Sit them down say, okay, let's talk. And, and don't be shocked. The little ones are usually very open and willing to do it, but don't be shocked if the older ones will look at you and like, are you serious? Do it. Just do it. Allow yourself some time to ask, what is the Christian faith? And, and, and be careful with your face and don't, don't freak out or, or start to become a lecturer or something like that. But I want you to ask questions. Talk about this with the family. Ask your kids and ask them, how would you answer that? How would you answer what is the Christian faith and what is the Christian church? And as you ask them, ask them through a question and then probe. So you want to ask, well, give me an explanation. Help me understand that. Enlarge on that. Give me three examples of when you say, well, it's this. Well, why is that? Okay, well, if that's true, how is that shown in your life. That's an incredibly good thing. Well, it's, it's the way of salvation. Okay, well, how do you show that in your life? Do you believe that? Well, yeah, Dad, you know that. Okay, how, how is that manifested? Why? What are the things that you find hindering that? If they say, I don't know if I agree with that or not. I don't even know if I believe that. Okay, why? Don't, don't freak out and throw the Bible at them. That won't go anywhere. But, but ask them why. What is it that you don't understand? Is it, is it a unbelief due to ignorance? Or is it a, and don't be shocked. They grew up in the church, and yet they can walk away not knowing. Or is it an unbelief in rebellion? You handle those two very different ways. And when you begin to answer these two questions, what you are is you're confronted with one of two options. Now, hear me on this. Any of you here in this room and you're saying, I don't think I'm a Christian, or I don't know, or I've been raised in a Christian home, but I'm tired of this. Let me me ask you this just in your own mind to think. Either the Christian faith and church is one of many options, in other words, one among equals, or they 
the Christian faith and the church are the only option. What is your answer? In your own mind, what's your answer? Okay, mom and dad, young and old, all of you, what's your answer? I don't want you to tell me. I want you to, in your mind, think, what is my answer? That it's one of many options that we can choose, or there's only one choice. And then, if you answer it one way or the other, I want you to ask yourself this. How does that show itself in your life? How, how, what's the evidence in your life that you can point to that models that that is true? Either way, I don't care which way it is. You want to be a rejecter of the Christian faith, fine, but know why. Know why. Don't, don't just be that bum who's flipping through your phone into oblivion. Know why you reject it. Know why you're bored with it. And if you're, if you're one who's sitting there saying, well, I know the right pa- answer, Pastor, and it's, it's the only one. Okay, is it true, though? Do you model that in your life? Is that seen so that your children know that the supreme joy is the Christian faith and the church of Jesus Christ, the body of Christ? Do you model those things? Too often our conversations start down a path and it's faulty. It's a path actually that ends up leading, therefore, to the wrong place because you're on the wrong path. It's a cul-de-sac rather than an open highway that leads into this glorious, uh, restful condition called eternal life. And once you start down that wrong path in your conversation, and I'm talking to you as a Christian in your evangelism, as you're trying to talk to a person about Christ, oftentimes what will happen is that you'll start down the wrong path, and then you'll wonder why you can't get to the gospel. It's because you're on the wrong path. You started down the wrong path, and now you've got to figure out a way to get that conversation turned to the gospel, and so you flounder. And after a while, you just stop because you're not good at it because you just can't seem to do it. Well, no, it's not so much that. It's usually because you started in the wrong way. Let me, let me talk to you a little bit about the ignorant causes of ignorance in the faith and the church. And when I say ignorance, I'm not saying you're dumb. I'm saying ignorance is simply the lack of knowing. The thing that astounds me as I talk to people today is... Within the non-Christian world, there's literally a lack of understanding. Just they don't know. But what shocks me all the more and saddens me and makes me very angry is the level of ignorance within the church. And so I want to suggest two ways that we create this level of ignorance about the Christian faith and the church. First is that we tend to approach it like it's a personal interest. So I'm, again, talking to all of you. We approach it like it's a personal interest. And some of you in this room, this is you. And we all have had these sorts of conversations. You make the mistake, I say this tongue-in-cheek, but you make the mistake of asking a person, hey, what did you do the other day? And for the next couple hours, they regale you with the intricate details of growing and maintaining mealworms. And you're just like, oh, and in your mind, you're wondering, how can I get out of this conversation? Because I don't care about mealworms. I have no interest in the mealworm. Well, it's the same as on any other point of interest that one person has, but you don't care at all about. Well, this occurs also, though, I would say, with the Christian faith and the church. When you talk about the Christian faith, think about how you communicate it. Think about this. Just in your own minds, Christians here, what is it you say when somebody asks you why you go to church? Again, I don't want to hear it. I want you to think about it. You know what you say. Why are you a person that goes to church? Or you want to say it slightly different. Why do you go here? The standard question I ask every single member, so we know a few of you are going to, uh, you're petitioning for membership. I won't be interviewing you, but if you be ready for this question. Why do you want to join Missio Day? Why do you want to join Missio Day? A hundred churches in this city, why do you want to come here and say, this is where I want to call home? Why do you say you attend church? Think about it. 
and see if you might find that you actually give them a personal reason, such as you feel welcome, you love the music, you appreciate the teaching, you have a lot of friends. Those are all personal reasons. They're not why you should go to church. And they're not why you should go to this church. Now consider then how the church and the faith is marketed, which is just a terribly horrid term, but it's what it's used. How the church and the faith is marketed today. It's all about personal preference and choice, isn't it? In a casual way, I'll just say it this way. Jesus will become your friend or your healer. Jesus will lift you up when you're down or broken. Jesus will give you peace and happiness. He will heal your marriage or fix your family. God will cause your business to flourish and so on. I remember back in the 1970s when I was younger and I would go to church camp every year and that was the Nazarene church's church camp up in the mountains of Idaho. It was beautiful. And then every night, because you in the Nazarene church, they believe you can lose your salvation, so you're always losing it. And so you're always having an altar call, and you're always coming up to get resaved every single night. And uh, and then they get out the guitar, and then you start the bonfire, and the guy starts strumming it. And now, now you're really having a spiritual moment, right? While you're also holding the hand of the girl you just met, and you're like, whoa. Um, and then you start to sing this song, and I, 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 some of you actually might know it, but something beautiful, something beautiful something good. All my confusion, he understood. All I had to give to him was brokenness and strife, but he made something beautiful out of my life. Man, you're like, that's deep. That's so deep. I should go forward and get saved again. That's that was the 70s. It's worse now. It's wor- and that was bad then. And we marketed all about you and your interests. Now, all of those things I just mentioned, you might have a broken life. He may have made something beautiful out of the mess you made. All of that might be true. He may have healed your marriage. He may have done many things. In fact, I remember talking to a friend of Kim and I, we didn't know them at this point. We visited this church when we were still engaged. We sat down and a guy behind us literally tapped me on the shoulder. I turned around and he sticks his hand in my face and he's like, hi, I'm Bruce. I was like, hi. He says, let me tell you what Jesus did for me. That was his opening line. That's about as subtle as a brick. But he was a drunk and, they, and, and he was harsh on his wife, and they were heading for a divorce, and somebody took the time to share Christ. And God saved that family, the whole family, and, and the marriage was healed. All of that might happen. But these are what is not, that's not what's needed. That message is not what, is not what is needed right now or ever. If you sell the faith and you sell the Christian church by using that approach, you run the risk of hearing, and this is what kids will do to you, your own children will do to you. You run the risk of them saying, that doesn't interest me. But, but, but you need fellowship. They got their friends. They don't need that. But you're going to have this. I'm fine, Mom. I'm Doing good. And we're trying to show them, see, you have all these needs. That's not what is important, but we fall into it. So we begin to market, and so we intellectualize the Christian faith and the church to market to the intellectuals. We create a la carte for the ones who are into individual tastes. I'm really into this and this, but not that. We feminize or masculinize it, depending on who we talk to. There's a church up in Milwaukee that, that uh, we met with the pastor, and he had very distinctive colors. And so when Matt Miller and I had lunch with them to discuss things that they were doing with their building, that's what we were there for, uh, we asked him about the church, and he's like, my, my target group is the Wisconsin male between the ages of 40 to 60, who rides Harleys. That was his market. 
And so all of the, and so with that, all of the color scheme at the church was built around that. You go into the men's restroom and it's very Harley-ish. And it was a big church, far bigger than ours. It works. If, whether, by whatever means you want to call it working. So we feminize, we masculinize it, and then we entertain for those who are bored. That's how we talk about the Christian church. These things will work in a way, but they never will produce a rich, full-bodied, mature believer who stands in the face of diversity and laughs at it. The fruit that comes out of this sort of thing is more prone to apostasy and heresy and much folly and heartache because they, they, they came, quote-unquote, they became a Christian because there was a need, a felt need that they had that they thought the church could meet. But if that felt need is no longer seen as a felt need that they don't need anymore, then why do they need church? How many times have you heard people, why are you here? Why, you know, I, I just... Things are going bad, and we, my wife and I were just talking, and we said, you know, we need God. We need God in our life, and that's what brings them to church. Well, I'm happy they're here, but that's not why you should be at church. Because the day that you don't feel like you need God anymore because things are doing pretty good, you're done. Why would you listen to me for an hour? I don't like listening to me for an hour. I'm not, I mean, seriously, it's like, why do you allow yourself for me and Grayson to beat you up every single week in some way or another? This approach always is in error because it begins with what we think a person feels they might want or need rather than the critical facts that they need to know because nothing else actually matters. And so to reiterate, The reason people are ignorant of the Christian faith and the church is because we approach the subject from the perspective of what we think might interest them. Second, the second way that I see the ignorance in the world and in the church itself about the Christian faith and the church, it is that we see the Christian faith and church as merely points of information among much information. Now, let me explain that. In this instance, we make the mistake of thinking that the Christian faith and the Christian church is part of the marketplace of ideas. You'll hear people actually say things like that. We believe that the the gospel of Jesus Christ can stand on its own in the marketplace of ideas. That we should have a place at the table, that we should uh, work in such a way to arrange ourselves so that we can be invited to sit at the table of the marketplace of ideas and we can all sit and share and discuss and and dialogue with one another. Won't that be wonderful? And it sounds good. I, I admit that sounds good. Unfortunately, we end up raising our kids that way too. And then we wonder with much sorrow why they reject it. Why? Why does that happen? Often it happens because we sold it as one of many options, one of many ideas. Sorry, this thing is not staying on. So when we sell it as merely one of many different viewpoints, don't be shocked when they decide they like a different viewpoint. I remember talking to a man about his attendance and the choices he was making with regard to his children and sports and how often they were missing church. He said, well, you have to understand that, I mean, if we're, we're there, we, we'll watch on the phone. I'm like, really? You think that that's going to make it? I said, what are you communicating to your son? What are you communicating to your daughter when you do these things? I'll tell you what you've communicated. You've communicated that church is important, but so is baseball. It's just one of many things in my life, and and if I have to juggle my schedule around so that I can do this, look, we can still watch it on the screen, and so we're, we're doing church. No, you're not. No, you're not, because there's no such thing as doing church. 
And we raise up our children as if it's just simply one of many ideas, one of many viewpoints. This sort of situation is what we see in many parts of the Christian world in America today. Massive theological shifts on almost every subject because we don't start from the correct position. We start from the table of ideas rather than the word. And then what we do is we go to that table of ideas, then we try to form the Christian message so it will fit in that table of ideas and won't be laughed at. Turn with me to Acts 17. Keep your finger here, but we're going to spend some time in Acts 17, and we'll see if this becomes a two-part sermon or not. In Acts 17... Verse 17 to 34. I'm going to read it, and then we'll go, go through it. We'll, we'll go ahead and start in verse 16. That's where I should have done. Well, Paul, now remember, Saul that we just heard about is, becomes Paul, the apostle, right? So Paul was waiting for them, Silas and Timothy, that's in verse 15, at Athens, in Athens, Greece. And his spirit was being provoked within him as he was beholding the city full of ideas. May I... Uh, ideas, a city full of idols. May I suggest to you that that is no different than a table full of the marketplace of ideas, okay? The marketplace of ideas is nothing more than a, a display of the idols of the world. Get that in your head and everything will become much more clear. It's a whole table of ideas and they're actually all idols. Well, in Athens, they just were idols, So he was reasoning in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be present. And also some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers were conversing with him, and some were saying, what would this idle babbler wish to say, others? He seems to be a proclaimer of strange deities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And so they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, may we know what this new teaching is which you are proclaiming, for you are bringing some strange things to our ears, and we want to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the strangers visiting there used to spend their time in nothing other than telling or hearing something new. Isn't that America today? And Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I observe that you are very religious in all respects. For while I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship, I also found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. What therefore you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and all the things in it, because he is Lord, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, neither is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all life and breath and all things. And he made from one every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitations." that they should seek God, if perhaps they might grope for him, find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and exist, as even of your own poets have said, for we are also of his offspring. Being then the offspring of God, we ought not to think of the divine nature, that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and thought of man. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, Remember in verse 23, they worshiped in ignorance. He says, now having looked, overlooked the times of ignorance, God is declaring to men that all everywhere should repent since he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. And when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some began to sneer. Others said, we shall hear more hear you again concerning this. And so Paul went out of their midst, but some men joined him and believed. Among them was also Dionysius, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris and others with him, or them. And after these things, verse 1, he left Athens and went to Corinth. 
Let me take you through this passage. Remember, one of the great causes of ignorance of the Christian faith in America and even in the church and the uh, ignorance of the Christian church. Understand, you can't separate those. You can't say, well, here's the Christian faith, the gospel, but much more than just the gospel. You can't separate that from the church. They're, they're indivisible. The church is, is literally um, interwoven with the Christian faith, and the Christian faith makes and brings into existence the church. And so when I'm talking about those, understand they, they, they're vitally connected. So Paul, he's, he's out there on his missionary journeys doing what Paul does, sharing Christ, starting churches, raising them to maturity, then moving on. And he does this with men. He's got Silas and Timothy. He has to wait for them. So he's just stuck there in Athens. Now, I've actually had the pleasure of being in Athens numerous times, and I've actually stood on this hill that he stood on. And in fact, when I stood on it, I, I, had known, I know this passage well, I just began to quote it from memory and preach it. And it was re- very unique when you're standing on it because you can then really see what was going on. The, the, the hill, it's called Mars Hill, was a place where at that time, the, all of the, uh, the intelligentsia of, of Athens, and there was a lot. This is a hotbed of philosophers and philosophy, and, and they had every kind of argument and discussion they could ever, you could ever dream of. And all the head honchos, if you will, would be on this committee, and they would have or hold court, if you will, on this hill. And if somebody came in with an, a philosophy, a, a religion, a, an argument, a deity that was of, of intrigue to them, they would gather you up here to talk to you. They would want to know what more about this. And then they would judge whether or not it was acceptable or not, or if it was just a cheap knockoff on one, one of the many thousands of gods they already had. Well, he's down there, and he's down in the Agora, which is the marketplace. So here's this hill. Picture that I'm standing on the hill, and it's made out of solid rock. It's really cool. I have a piece of it in my office, and uh, I don't know if that was loud, but it came home with me. And um, I don't know how. It just was in my pocket. Um, No, anyhow, I'm there, and the Agora marketplace is right here. And you're looking down the hill into this vast marketplace. And literally on every street, every corner, and throughout the street itself are nothing but altars to idols, okay? And then right over here is the Acropolis, where all of the the Parthenon, all of those great temples are. And that's towering above the Mars Hill. So as he talks about here, and then he's over here, and you can just see all of that as Paul is talking. So with that, he's now confronting the people. He goes through the marketplace, and he doesn't say, my, what a marketplace of ideas. How can I join this? How can I become part of this discussion? How can I become accepted at the table where we all might sip our wine and eat our grapes and discuss the great mysteries of life and the problem of evil and this and that, and my, isn't this a blessing? His spirit is literally being broken in him, it says, as he sees the abject ignorance of these people of God. They have every iteration of every kind of deity known to mankind. You have no idea how many thousands of altars were in that marketplace. Any and every God possible. And he's out there and he can't shut up. He has to start to talk to the people. And quickly it becomes known about this man who might be introducing new gods something called Jesus. That's Jesus and the resurrection. It sounds like it's a male and female God. Oh, okay, we know what's going on. We got our temple to Aphrodite. We got all this stuff. No, he's talking about Jesus Christ and the resurrection. That's all he's talking about. And they're getting confused. They don't understand. And then they're starting to not like what he's saying. And so they invite him to come 
and make a defense for what he believes. So now you can, you can imagine if it was today, Twitter, pray for me. I've been invited to go up onto Mars Hill. I'm going to be talking to them uh, just that I would have wisdom and I would know how to speak and, and really that I could engage them. These are, these are some really bright minds. And so I'm feeling a little bit intimidated, don't know quite what to do, blah, 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 blah. You can just hear it, right? You can know it. You, you just, what would take place? I've been invited to the table. See if I can get a seat. I want a seat. I need a seat. The Jesus needs a seat. The gospel needs a seat. We want to see people one to Jesus. So let me be capable of doing that. Well, he stands in the midst, verse 22 of the Areopagus. And he says, men of Athens, I perceive that you are very religious. Well, most likely he's standing here looking at the men and he just goes like that. And there's the marketplace filled with idols. He's like, I perceive you are very religious. You have no idea how much ink is spilled in Christian commentaries about that comment. And see, he's, he speaks approvingly of their religion and that they're, they're at least on the path and, and, and moving in the right direction because, see, he acknowledges that they're very religious. That he wouldn't be saying that if he wasn't against that. No, he's just making the obvious statement. There's a lot of religion going on here. That's it. And then he rips into him. He says, in fact, while I was walking through your marketplace, I found an altar, and it says, to the unknown God. And this is his entrance. This is how he's going to do it. He's not going to say, you know, let's get here and let's discuss. He says, what you worship in ignorance, I will now proclaim to you. All right. So you know this unknown God. The unknown God altar actually was erected because some philosopher thought, you know, we have literally no ability to know how many gods there are out here, so we better cover our best. Let's just put that, and that will cover anyone that we forgot. And then as people start talking about new gods that probably exist, then you will add those, but that's our, our one that covers us. And so he uses that and says, what you therefore worship in ignorance. So he's already told them what they are. What are they? You're ignorant. You admit it. You have an altar that's been approved by you sitting in the marketplace of this God you don't know. I know him. I'm going to tell you about him. The God who made the world and all it's in it because he is the Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell temples made with hands. You can just see him point up to the Acropolis, filled with the temples. The one that you worship in ignorance is not like anything you've ever seen before. He doesn't ask to join the table. He flips it over. When was the last time in your conversation with your kids, you flipped the table over? And you just said, you don't get it. You don't get it, buddy. You're, you're, you actually think this is somehow equal to this. It's not. It's not. And it can't be. It will never be. The God I worship, son, made you and everything that you have, all that you are, every breath that you take, every pump of your heart, all of it is by this God. No other God, nothing else, not you, not your exercises, not anything you do, all of it that you have and breathe. You brag about your, ex, your, your skills with music or your intelligence with your math or your ability to woo people or find a girl at, at, at the drop of a hat. Oh, isn't that awesome? Who made you and who holds you together? This God who made the heavens and the earth. He didn't dwell in any temple like we can do anything. He goes on, neither is he even served by human hands. Oh, what, you think you're doing a favor to God because you did this? Oh, golf clap to you. Now, this is when you're dealing with a rebellious kid, okay? You wouldn't do this with your four-year-old. 
But there is a time and place to talk like that. Golf clap to you. You went to church. Oh, you actually woke up on time. Wow. Oh, look at that. You brought your Bible, and you sat through all the way without having to go potty as a teenager. Wow. Golf clap. Aren't you serious about Jesus? No, you're not. You don't even serve him with human hands. None of us do. What did you think you did this day? Did you think you came here as if you were given to him something he needs? He needs nothing. That's your God. Unserved. He says he's not served by human hands as though he needs anything. Why? Since he gives to all life and breath and all things. You have somebody and they're like, I don't need this. Show me one thing you did. And then just make the point, no, God gave this to you. And they'll say, no, I work for it. And why do you have hands that can work? I crafted that. I developed. That came from my own soul. And your soul is made by God. And he crafted you in such a way that you see things that nobody else can see. And with that beautiful artistic touch that you possess, you can do it. Yeah, that's a beautiful thing. And you do not give glory to the God who gave it to you. That's how you have to talk, beloved. Don't ever approach the Christian faith as if it's just an idea. If that's it, then you're probably not even a Christian yourself. It is a serious task. We either serve the true God or we are just one of many. Which is it? He says he made from one every nation of mankind to live on and all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and boundaries of their habitation. For what purpose? Why did he make you, my son, that you might seek him? That's his only purpose. That's your only reason for living. And the very fact that you laugh at that and sneer at that and roll your eyes and shrug your shoulders, young lady, because you're afraid that if I do this, I might lose out on that. The only reason that you're not struck dead right now because the only purpose all of us have is to seek God. That's why we exist. And the only reason as you don't seek him, that he doesn't strike you dead, is he is infinitely kind. You're like, I don't know how to find him. Grope. Grope like a blind man. He's not far from you. Because we, in him, we move, we live, we exist. But you keep trying to make him into your own image. And so you try to fashion him in your pictures, in your gold, your silver, your stones, your thought, your pattern, your whatever it is. And you fashion a false god that belongs down there in the marketplace among the many other gods. And he keeps saying, I shatter that because I am not that. I am Yahweh. There is no other. I share my glory with no other. Bow before me. You are a sinner as a rebel. Come find cleansing and forgiveness and life in my son and follow. So then he says in verse 30, he says, so, After that, do you see, do you get my point? In no way is he treating this group of wise, powerful philosophers and rulers like he's one of them. And he's not wanting to be one of them. He just goes right in as a wrecking ball and destroys all of it. And then he says, so now you're not ignorant. Now, this is a bad Henry way of saying it. He says, having overlooked the times of ignorance. In other words, he's saying to you, young lady, you're not ignorant. Young man, you're not ignorant anymore. You now know it. You've heard it. 
And he's calling you, all of you, to repent. Turn from your way and turn to him, the living God. Having furnished proof this way through a man whom he raised from the dead. And right there, he just goes too far. He goes too far. If only he had Josh McDowell's evidence that demands a verdict, he could have maybe approached the issue of resurrection more carefully and shown them clever arguments or, or whatever. Now, he just is foolish old Paul, and he says he rose from the dead, and they lose it, and they start sneering at him. Now, some, they're like, you know, we want you to come back. We'd like to hear more. What's he do? He takes the ones who believes, and then he goes to a whole different city. He doesn't come back. Why? because he knows what they want. Some of them are like, this is stupid, but others are like, this is kind of cool. Let's talk more. But it's all about what they want to talk about. They want to have a dialogue. They want to have, they want to give him a seat at the table. He rejects the table, and so must you. There is no table. There's just the gospel. And the reason that the church is so Weak, And the reason that our nation is so ignorant is that we have lost our way and we have begun to think of the church, the Christian faith, the gospel, as just something that meets my felt need or is just one of many ideas. And you raise your children to think that way. And you yourselves act like it is, perhaps. And you all need to repent if that's you. I need to repent of that. This sermon was me all week long just chewing on me. How do you and I approach our faith? And do we show this to our children? Every time they open their mouths and say stupid things, and kids are good at that, And before you say, amen, you were that dumb kid too once. You confront them with what is true. You would never say, well, Josh, that's very interesting. I'm intrigued to hear that. Tell me more about your thoughts about why this ought to be that or we ought to do that. You say, no. And let them be confronted with the no, and then you saying that is contrary to the will of God. Here's why. And you need to understand that, son. It's not an option. It's not an option. But you have to model that in your own life because that's your own conviction because you believe these things. I have technically four more minutes and I've got too much to go through. So I'm going to bring it to a close here. Here's the point. You do not find in the Bible any, any sense when it speaks of the Christian faith or the Christian church that those things are options to consider. Jesus Christ and the apostles were brutally clear about it. There is but one way and only one way to find life everlasting forgiveness. And if any of you sitting here think that there's something else out there, go for it. Go for it if you want. But I'll tell you, if you've even lived 15 years of life up to this point, tell me one thing that's lasted, one thing that makes it. The reality is that all of this age has fallen. All of this age is dead in sin, bound up under the power of Satan. And only Jesus Christ can deliver it. And that is your message. That beloved, that message is what they went out while being persecuted and running for their lives. The one thing they didn't leave behind was the gospel. They were compelled to speak it. Why would they do that? Because they were not thinking of it as a personal felt need or an idea among many ideas. They ran for their lives, fully convinced that this is the only thing that matters. My question to you, beloved, as a Christian is, do you? And to those of you who are not a Christian, show me something more supreme. Because you won't.
Let's pray. So, Father, as we now prepare to go home, gather together maybe in groups, have family, friends, Oh, Father, just put this upon our hearts. Forgive us of how we treat your word, your son, how often we make our excuses. And our explanations that seem so wise. Instead, impress upon us. There's nothing else. Let us be like Peter. Where else are we going to go? Where else are we going to go? You alone have the words of eternal life. Let us become men and women who act like Jesus. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man shall see the Father but through me. Let us repent of our folly. Let us stop trying to soft sell it. If we're going to be hated, Father, let us be hated for Christ. I ask in your son's name. Amen.